This is Take a Second, a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that focuses on finding the Savior in the Old Testament, and then how we might teach it in family or ward settings. I'm Brian Ricks, and Stuart Black is joining me to make sure that we stay on the rails. We are recording the podcast from the Student Lounge at the Pocatello Institute. So thanks for joining us for our lunchtime discussion of this week's Come Follow Me Scripture Block. Well, here we are. we got two weeks left. Yeah. Um, Haggai and Zechariah today, yeah. and then Malachi. Malachi. Short, just four yeah. chapters next week. Yeah. Um, welcome, everybody, out there in uh, YouTube or on the podcast. Uh, this is our last semester, or our last week of this semester. Yeah, here at ISU. Finals. So next week they're in finals. Uh, we think we'll probably still do uh, at least one more for Malachi next week that we'll record and get that out there. And then uh, we've gotten the green light to go ahead and do one for the New Testament. So we didn't chase people off or scare them off. So. <laughs> or the people that make those decisions didn't watch. So one or the other. <laughs> um, green light on that. So we'll get started. We're excited to jump start into, into the New Testament. But... Um, I think, and we mentioned this last week, I think one of the mistakes at the end of the Old Testament is you get so excited about the stable. New Testament. <laughs> start running. You start, yeah, you start heading back to, to get to the oats and the, and the hay, and um, and we miss these last these last couple books. You never miss Malachi because that's got the great tithing verse in it. Um, but Haggai and, and Zechariah, I, I made the mistake, and I don't know if you ever do this, but I got so hung up bouncing back and forth in just two chapters of Haggai that I gave Zechariah almost no... Well, that's good, because I spent most of my time in Zechariah. Okay, good. <laughs> this worked out really well, then. Um, so neither one of us can correct the other that's one. That's right. Yeah, so you won't know if what I'm saying is right like, or that wrong. That sounds true. <laughs> you guys might know that we're right or wrong, but luckily, I think we've got comments turned off on the YouTube that's channel, right. uh, so it won't matter if we're right or wrong. You can't say anything. Um, well, let's... Sh- should we start with Haggai? Yeah, let's do it. Start with there? Yep. Um, so timing of Haggai. Haggai's... Uh, Probably a part of that first exodus out of Persia, um, King Cyrus, uh, and a part of that first effort to, to rebuild the temple, which means he would have been a part of all of that excitement and all of that first push of, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and then he would have watched the kind of the, the letdown. And, yeah. and some of that could have been political, because when Cyrus dies, his son takes over and isn't as, isn't as friendly to some of these exiles that have returned, and so they're not... He's not financing it the way his dad did. Um, but so there's part of the overlap then, too, would be Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Yep. And so yeah, so he's going to be books in. that we covered earlier, that's a lot of where Haggai and Zechariah yep. are also going to be. Yeah, yeah which makes you wonder, too. and I thought this a couple of times going through this, I wonder how I, it might be kind of cool to just take, to go run to the de- run to Desert Industries or a Salvation Army and grab an old Bible, grab an Old Testament, cut the books out. And it'd be kind of cool to place them in read them chronological yeah. and and read all of these prophets in the order that they're instead of instead of the major prophets and the minor prophets and put them all together so that you have Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai yeah. all together and you see that whole story all at once. Um, I think if you were to do that, some of the, the call to repentance in Haggai makes way more sense if you're reading it in context of Ezra and Nehemiah and the letdown and 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 the letting off. Uh, I was also caught I, in reading the Institute Manual for uh, this book and for this for this section, the parallel between church history and uh, and Haggai and, and, the, and the Jews going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. You've got these impoverished people who really have no... Cyrus has given them all the stuff and he's given them some material means, but when he dies, that all kind of dries up. So you've got this impoverished people who are 
at the same time trying to carve out an existence for themselves, they're, they're dealing with this commandment from the Lord to, to build the temple. And how do you balance those out? And, and it, that parallel caused me to reread some of these verses a little bit differently. Verse 5, uh, the Lord, Haggai says, Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then he, he re, re, uh, what do you call that, repeats that when you say it more than once when you're redundant <laughs> and you repeat things. Uh, verse 7, he says again, consider your ways. And so I went back and spent some time with that. And, and ways is not just what you do, but it's also the pathway that you're on. And then, so after verse 5, he says, consider your ways. In other words, stop and look at the path you're on. And does this path take you where you want to go? You don't you don't get to California by going north on I-15 from Pocatello. You can't get there. But but sometimes spiritually we do that. Sometimes we want to get to this spiritual destination with very little spiritual effort. And and so the Lord is saying, look, consider your ways. And and then He says specifically, think about this: You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You you clothe yourself. But you're, there is none warm. In other words, you get dressed, but you don't stay warm. And then I think the key is in the very last one. And I, this is where I spent some time thinking. And uh, He said, he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. And it seems to me that the Lord is saying, look, it's not that you're not, if you're that wage earner and you're putting all of your earnings, you're putting all your money into this bag with holes in it, you don't need to earn more money. Yeah. The issue with, you know, you've sown much and bring in little, you don't need to plant more. You need to improve on the harvest. Uh, you've eaten, but you're not satisfied. You you're, you eat, but you don't get full. Do you, do you remember that story of uh, the guys with the watermelon truck? And they go to a field and they buy watermelons for a dollar. And then they go sell them at the market for a dollar. And they're like, where's all our money going? Yeah. And the one says, I think we need a bigger truck. I because they're like they're selling them, you know, buying them for a buck, selling them for a buck, and they're like, we don't have any increase. Yeah, that the issue is not the truck. And yeah, it's not the truck. You don't need to buy more watermelons. Yeah. It's that same thing here. I, and I and I didn't catch that at first until I came back to it and, and focused on that last one where he he highlights the fact that look, you have enough money if you take care of it. Your problem, sew up the holes, and you'll find that your money lasts longer. Yeah. And I've thought about like sometimes. We have enough. My wife and I years ago went to the Dominican Republic, and, and she has said this over and over again. The thing that amazed her the most about the Dominican Republic was how happy everybody was with how little they had. In the United States, most of us are not unhappy because of something we don't have. We're unhappy for other reasons. And then, so then Sandwich, he takes that and he says, look, and then he says again, consider your ways. And then verse 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and br- and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. In other words, build my house that I told you to build. Here's the Lord kind of restoking the, the excitement. And verse 9, he explains kind of why he's upset. The Lord's, the Lord's a little jealous here. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? Saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste... And ye run every man unto his own house. In other words, the Lord's saying, where's my house? I told you to build me a house. And you all come home and you give this little effort, and then you all flee and go back to your own houses that you've built and are finished. It's time to finish my house. And this is now the call to repentance. 
finish my house. And I've thought about the, the parallel, the saints in Kirtland, the saints in Nauvoo, and, and now the saints in Haggai's day, these people who have nothing, and yet the Lord's asking them to build a temple. It seems like it's a little selfish. Um, God, you have the heavens. You're okay. You're all right. Um, but in chapter 2, I think the Lord points out why he wants them to build them a house. And, and it has to do with this, you know, eating and drinking and never being satisfied, earning but never having enough, sowing but never having a big enough harvest. Um, Haggai reminds him in chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? In other words, those of you, the very, very oldest, the oldest men and women would have been children in when they were taken out of Jerusalem and saw the temple, saw Solomon's temple. Remember, Solomon spends years building this temple, and he has all of the wealth of the of the Israelite nation at his disposal, of a unified Israelite nation. And so, and I wonder if there's, I wonder if this chapter, if there's some, I wonder if some of the let off is we're never going to be able to do it like Solomon did. And I've thought about people who come into into callings and into positions where someone before them was super dynamic. Um, and I, I don't know if any of my friends in Utah watch this, so I, I'll be careful. But we had at one point a very dynamic bishop, and he was perfect for that time. Um, he was a salesman. And he was he very charismatic and and personable. And um, and I remember the bishop that took his place was not that same personality. And and there it was just the stark contrast was so interesting. And it would be easy. I, I think I wonder if this the contrast is what's causing some of the letdown for the Israelites in rebuilding this temple. We're never gonna be able to do it the way they Solomon did it. And I can see if 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 a bishop if 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 a, if a bishop following someone very charismatic and, and beloved by the people, um if he were to say, I'm never going to be able to do it like him. Uh, I, I think of a Thomas S. Monson trying to step into the shoes of a Gordon B. Hinckley, who took this church and just kind of, made, I mean, really, we became a global church under Gordon B. Hinckley. And there, were, there was a, an entire generation who didn't know any prophet but Gordon B. Hinckley. But, but President Monson wasn't worried about being Gordon B. Hinckley. And I think the Lord is saying, look, I'm not trying to get you to build Solomon's temple. It wasn't Solomon's temple in the first place. You can call it that, but that's not what it was. And then he goes on and he says, um, I love verse 5, according to the covenant, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And I just had a thought as I was reading that. I, man, the Lord takes his covenant seriously. This is a long, Egypt's a long time ago. And none of these people were around, and none of these people's parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were around. And, yeah. But the Lord's saying, I've remembered that covenant. Yeah. Well, can I, can I just interject a, yeah. a thought there? Um, this, uh, in, in four, and, and I have a bunch of thoughts going based on some of the things that you said here, that um, they're making this comparison. You, you, you brought up, like, how would it feel to take over for that? And my first thought was Joshua to Moses. Yeah, that's a great And just example. like, I'm like, man, the beginning of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is terrified, and Moses doesn't even get into the promised land, and the Lord tells Joshua, he's like, you're going in, you have the green light, and he's like, I have to go to the place that you we've all talked about for so long, plus I got a feeling for Moses. 
And the number one, the number one message that the Lord repeats to Joshua, it's in six. Be strong and of a good courage. Seven, only be thou strong and very courageous. Verse eight, be strong and of a good courage. Don't be afraid, I've got you. Verse four says, yet now be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. For saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you. This is the same verse that he gives to Joshua, and then you're bringing up Egypt. Those people remembered Egypt. Yep. And even some of them hadn't, because I mean, by this time it's 40 years later after some of that, and so a lot of the older adults had all been killed off in the in the wilderness by the time they're getting to the promised land. At least Joshua and Caleb, right? Yes, Joshua and, and Caleb. Kid, remember? And the kids who were younger than 20 or 22, I can't remember the cutoff age yep. off the top of my head. But those, all of those people, still would have remembered it as well. And so now you have this idea where anybody who is 60 or younger wouldn't have remembered any of it, but all the 60-year-olds would have, and they have this comparison of, is this as good and prominent and huge as Egypt? No, it's the promised land. It was kind of the, it was the Canaanite. It was, yeah. yeah. And, and, but yet the Lord is saying, like, I've, I've got you. Like, you can do this. Be Only be strong and have a good courage. And I love in that verse three times, be strong, be strong, be strong, just like it says back in Joshua. That's my connection to Egypt. And, and when you look at who he's telling to be strong, it's, it's these... Can you imagine the pressure on these high priests who are coming back to try and restore the the, the temple work? Temple work, and and the pressure that to to get it right and to and you're gonna and later on you're gonna have you know Haggai's gonna say all right let's let's just remind let's remind let's remind you the purpose of the the law of Moses if anyone bears if you come into contact with dead flesh are you clean nope. Uh, what if you do this? Are you clean? Nope. What if you do this? Are you clean? And then he says, yeah, okay, now, <laughs> now that you've remembered the law of Moses, now let me remind you about you know, what that really had to do with. That's you. you. I'm talking about you as a people. Yeah. Don't come into contact with things that are going to affect your spirit. Um, as After he says that, I, verse 9, this, is, this was a major kind of an aha moment for me going back to why would the Lord ask the Latter-day Saints in Kirtland and Nauvoo and, and Haggai and and Ezra and Nehemiah and the, and the Jews in this day, why would he ask them to do something that temporally seems so out of their capacity? Um, and and it's verse nine says, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. Meaning this one in, in the Lord's eyes, the way the Lord sees things, this temple is going to be grander than the temple of Solomon. And and part of it is, so the question is, well, why? And and you think about the widow that the Savior watches drop her her mites into the into the tithing booths or into the into the collection plans and and his comment to, to his disciples and those around him that she's given more than anyone else. And I think sometimes we fail to see things the way the Lord does. Uh, the Lord asked these people to build a temple. He asked the Latter-day Saints to build the temple. In our day, he asked us to go to the temple. And sometimes we have this warped sense of, you know, that I'm doing this for the Lord. And we forget that everything the Lord asks us to do, especially when it comes to sacrifices, is meant to help us. I want you to go to the, I, I want you to build a temple, not because of what I'm going to get out of it. I mean, I talk about it being my house and I want to have a house. But he says at the end of verse 9, in this place will I give peace. And, and, and so, do you want to eat and be full? Do you want to drink and be satisfied? Do you want to do you want to plant and have enough? It's really not about what you have. It's about in here. The, the idea of being satiated is totally in our heads. Um, 
and the Lord's saying, if you'll build a house, I'll give you the peace. I'll give you, I'll fix up here so that w what you have is enough. And, and so just to, my second thought then goes with this, what you're talking about, this idea of the Lord giving peace. Um, the saints built temples before they built chapels. Yeah. And you just think of like the scale up to it. You're like, all right, build a little church house and mm -hmm. put a basketball court in there, and then you yeah, know, make sure <laughs> make sure that. make sure that that's at the center. <laughs> make sure that. But you're you're building you're building temples first, and then just if I were to put myself in the shoes of these early saints in Kirtland, I built the Kirtland Temple and lost it. I, I was trying to build temples in Missouri, and we didn't even get a we chance. Get a chance to plan. We, yeah. we finished Nauvoo just to leave it. And then as I've started Salt Lake, Johnson's Army's coming in. Mm -hmm. and you bury I, it. And I bury it and start again. Mm -hmm. And I, I know in Salt Lake that there was, I'm sure, a handful of people who have got to be thinking, why do we keep building these? Every time I build it, I have to run away from it. And you think of those early pioneer temples, and now just to, if you could go back and just show those early pioneers, like, look what we're trying to do to maintain the Salt Lake Temple. Like, I know that you had to walk away from Kirtland, and I know you had to walk away from Nauvoo and Missouri, but look what you did here. And it's not, it's not for the Lord. I love that you brought that up. It's so that we can have peace. Um, Sidney Rigdon spoke for uh, two hours or four hours or something. I can't, I'd have to look it up again, uh, at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, all based on Matthew 8, 10, 11, 12, which is this boxes of holes and the birds of the earth have nests, but the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. He, he bases a two to four hour sermon on these three little verses, and he says, we're building this so that Jesus has a place to lay his head. But to take it this other way, and I'm sure Sidney mentions this, is so that we can be with him. If I want peace, I, I have got to connect myself to the Savior. They're coming out of exile. They're going through all these hardships. So then why? Why does the Lord, one of the first things, build a temple? Why is it this impoverished saints in the early church build a temple? Why is it that, that the Lord is asking the saints throughout the world, you need temples, you need temples, you need temples? Because you need peace. Yeah. You need to be filled. And, and I think this would be a great opportunity as teaching this to say, all right, this is your chance to testify of temples. Why do you love it? Why do you sacrifice to go? With all of your time, I know that you're so busy, why? Why is that your priority, that you have a goal, that you're a weekly person or a monthly person or whatever you are, that you're like, I need to go to the temple and testify of the peace that comes when you choose to build your life on those covenants of the temple. So one of the things I was gonna, if I were teaching this to, especially teenagers and even young adults, I would, I wanted, I would want to start with this idea of what difference does eternal perspective make? Why is it important? What's, what is How does perspective help you in a preseason? You know, what, what, what does it mean to have perspective in a preseason two-a-day practices? If you're, you know, if you're in football or uh, my my sophomore son is, he, they're just starting basketball and they're starting their first games. You know, what when you're running those sprints, why do you need to? Well, why do you want to keep in mind your goal of winning a championship? This idea of having a championship, having the destination in mind, motivates me through the hard work. And so, and, and then just talk about, you know, shift from this perspective of uh, championships in the world of sports, which is kind of the world I think see through. I spent too much time in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> way too much time. I, in fact, I just finished a, um, I just finished a book on the New England Patriots dynasty. Um, and... It's fascinating how how much Tom Brady and Belichick and and Kraft, how much that that kind of that trio that, that put that together, what they were willing to go through and and persevere through, 
all because they saw that trophy at the end and all because of that that goal not just to win a championship I mean after you win a few championships you've won them but there's this goal to become almost eternal like we want to be the best team ever we want to be always remembered and that drive motivates them to six championships and, and some really incredible records and a, and a run that I don't know if you'll, it'll ever be matched um, and then and then to shift gears and to talk about how does an eternal perspective, how does keeping our sights on the blessings promised in the temple, how does that affect our decisions about what we watch, what we listen to, um, what, what kind of books we listen to, or what kind of podcasts we listen to, et cetera, et cetera. And just, and just this idea of how does, how does an eternal perspective affect our day-to-day decisions and where we put our time. This verse, back in verse 9, when it, you know, do we do we give a little bit of it? Do we give this kind of pathetic attempt at temple worship, and then rush to our own houses, whatever that might be? You know, we get. I remember their uh, elder Holland saying something like, "Members of the church get uncomfortable when it takes 90 minutes to do an endowment, but they don't have any problem sitting for two hours in a you know in the movie of their choice or whatever." Um, and I, I kind of I kind of fall into that sometimes. I can sit and blow through an uncomfortable afterwards, an uncomfortable amount of time watching a Netflix show of my choice, usually psych. It's not, it's not Netflix anymore. That's just like, Netflix has become the catch-all. I don't even have yes. Netflix. But Watch, I talk about stream Netflix. Yeah. yeah. So, but I, so I, yeah, I stream something, and, and I don't think at all about 90 minutes. But if I'm really honest, there are, there are times where I'm like, oh, I can't get to the temple today. It's an hour and a half. I, don't, I can't make up that. I can't, I can't sacrifice that. But with the eternal perspective, all of a sudden that time flops. All of a sudden now... I, how can I take 90 minutes to watch a Netflix or a, an Amazon Prime video when I haven't gotten to the temple this week? And, and the, the perspective, eternal perspective will help with that. And I, I guess just to end Haggai with where Haggai started, this idea of consider your ways, consider your paths. The road you're on right now, what's the destination? What are the exits that you have coming in front of you? Consider your ways. Yeah, I, and that idea when you focus on the end in mind or begin with the end in mind, I, I think that's powerful. You know what you're going to get out of it. Yep. And, and when you do that, when you sit down to watch a show before, you're like, okay, what am I going to get out of the show? Not a lot. And it's like, well, I should do something else then. Mm-hmm. But we don't do it that way. No. And so I love that idea starting with the end in mind. End in mind. There, there's, a, there's a few uh, things in Zechariah. We've talked about the temple a bunch, and let's just maybe I'll highlight a couple of the, the temple parts of this that I enjoy. In chapter 3 uh, of Zechariah, um, you mentioned uh, the high priest and their responsibilities and going back to the, the high priest is, remember, the only one who can go to the Holy of Holies. And um, there's certain things that he does on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And anyways, uh, verse 1, so 1 to 7, um, this reminds me just of, of, of the temple. He says, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So in my mind, I have this, that he's trying to go forward. Satan is at his right hand. I'm not saying you're Satan, but Satan's at his right hand. And he's trying to progress. And Satan is resisting him. Now, in Satan means the adversary or the accuser, which is so key to verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, o, rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now, to break this up a little bit, um, if Satan's the great accuser in Revelation 12, it talks about how he stood at the throne of God day and night accusing the brethren. And, and he was saying, basically, this is pre-earth life. He's standing there pointing at all of us saying, they're not worth it. They won't make it. They will mess up. They are too weak. Like, they can't do it. And you think of any interaction with Satan, he's always accusing us of stuff, of not being good enough, 
of, of falling short all of the time. And Joshua, um, it, the end part of this is not this a brand plucked out of the fire. Uh, we took the young men of my ward camping this summer, and some of them had never, they were like brand new deacons. So some of them had never camped before, and that's an adventure, right? Well. Yeah. And you're, you're bringing them there. One of the kids, he's asked me probably 40 times since then, can we go camping again? He loved the fire. He was I'm like all little boys. He's all about the fire. First thing kids do when they go camping is they go pick out their stick, the thing that they're going to hit trees and each other with. That's This is a lot different than girls' camp. And so they all have these sticks. By the end of camp, this kid has burned every single one of their sticks. Their walking sticks, their swords, whatever they were. They were playing these with these sticks. And he's, he's telling Joshua, he says, I rescued you. You were the brand that you were getting burned, and I pulled you out of the fire. And so Satan has got to be standing here saying, like, you're no good. Now, in, in 3, it says Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. So this is how I'm choosing to vision this, that he's a high priest. He shouldn't be wearing priestly robes, and he's in filthy garments. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And, and unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. He's given him new garments. He's giving him the, the priestly clothes, the priest, priestly robes. And I said, let, the, let them set a fair miter upon his head. A miter's a cap. So they set a fair miter upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord is watching, making sure this is all being done correctly. That he's taking off his filthy clothes. He's putting on the Lord's garments that he's given him. And then 7 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house. He says, if you'll be obedient, if you'll follow me, I'm going to make you responsible. I'm going to put you in a position of leadership to judge my house, to be a ruler or a king. And thou shalt keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Well, who's standing by? Satan's gotten kicked out already. The ones that stand by are the messengers. He says, if you follow my commandments, if you wear this garment, if you wear these, these royal robes that I've given to you, then you'll be able to walk by all of these angels and these heavenly messengers, messengers who are standing guard in front of me so that you can keep going. You can get to my presence. And I, I love the, these verses. As I read through these, I thought, man, the Lord is really teaching Joshua that put off the world, focus on what the Lord has given you, focus on your covenants that you clothe yourself with, and proceed. Go forward, not backwards. And, and that idea, I, I absolutely love it. The Lord says, you belong with these angels. You belong with these heavenly messengers because you're obeying me, and now you're dressed just like them. And I, I thought that was a, a cool connection to the temple as we are talking about rebuilding it. So talking about peace, now we're talking about power. That he says, the reason I want, I need you to build this temple. you got to have peace, but you got to have power. And I will give you those things when you honor your temple covenant. And anyways, I thought that was a, a pretty cool connection to the cool. to the temple there. Awesome Those are just great, yeah. great verses hidden in there. Now, a, a lot of these other ones are about the second coming, and we may chat about those for, for a second. But uh, I wanted to share one other thing about the temple here at the end. Um, anytime that uh, this is the very last chapter of Zechariah 14, um, at the, in verse 20, there's some bold words. Anytime things bold, capitalized, like they're kind of stand out here. So this is verse 20 of chapter 14. 
It says, In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. So they're engraving this, their catchphrase, their brand on everything. Holiness to the Lord, holiness to the Lord, holiness to the Lord. And that's what it says on the outside of temples in these big block letters, right? Holiness to the Lord. Um, and in, uh, in Nauvoo, you can go on a tour of Jonathan Browning's home. And he's the guy who really changed the firearm industry yep. and uh, joined the church in uh, mid-30s, uh, 1830s. Um, he invented the or patented the repeating uh, rifle and the repeating uh, revolver. pistol, revolver as well, the six-shot. And uh, do you know what he stamped on, the, on the, his guns? Holiness to the Lord, our preservation. All of his guns that he made, he put this on the barrels. Oh, I want one. I know. And so you can see this idea. And for him, wow. they're putting this on bells of horses. But Jonathan Browning is saying, like, I put it on everything. To him, that was his brand. That he said, the, I, everything I do, the Lord is my protection. Now you have peace. Now you have power. Now you have protection. Now you have the bells of the horses, your journey, your path. Well, the Lord's going to be my path. So you have all of these things now that the temple can be for you. And whether we meant to do it or not, they all happen to start with a P and path. And so you have power and peace and uh, prosperity. And, and now you have this is your path. The Lord is going to say it's on the bells of your horses. It's on the pots, the food that you're eating, your preservation. Jonathan Browning, it's the Lord is my preservation through protecting me. And if we could just do that same thing, and, and that would be a question you could easily ask a family or a class, that how is the Lord your holiness? How, how are you giving holiness to the Lord? If you could put this on something, what would you put it on? Okay, change that. How do you put this on your life? If you could walk around with this as your seal, as your trademark, holiness unto the Lord. Well, how can I do that in my life? And, and understanding that everywhere you go can be that holiness. And I think that's what that phrase is driving in. I like, I like the fact that he says, I, And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls of the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness in the Lord. This idea that we're going to stamp this on the temple. And and then Boyd K. Packer was big at teaching the fact that you make your homes a temple. Yeah. And this idea that it's not just about... It's not just about going to the temple. Elder Bednar's idea of you don't go to the temple, you let the temple go through you. And if you let the temple go through you enough, your home mom, you, you start to start to imitate those things. Elder McConkie's idea that the highest form of worship is emulation. And so um, when we when we start when we've been to the temple enough that this idea is imprinted not just on the walls but on us. You see that in Jonathan Browning. Then all of a sudden, we start imprinting it on the things around us. Mm -hmm. And it spreads. In, and that's the idea is you're spreading that power of the temple or the, the blessings of the temple everywhere you go. It becomes who you are yeah. just naturally. Well, we've spent some good time. I don't know if you have any finishing thoughts, final thoughts, or if that was a pretty good place to end relating all those things to the temple. But I know I, I love the idea of the temple. In fact, that's um, – I just – I think – I guess just to end where I, what I what I got out of Haggai and I see it in Zechariah as well is when you have the doctrine and covenants point nothing's temporal to the Lord everything's spiritual yeah. and and the more time we spend and the more comfortable we become uh, with those spiritual things the more spiritual goals become our our goal or the spiritual um, goals become our quest you know President Benson's comment when obedience becomes a quest in that moment God endows you with power um, there's something that 
the world loses its its drag on you. It, it loses its influence on you when you keep that eternal perspective and when you keep what you want. Uh, it was Elder Scott that said, "Don't give up what you want most for what you want today." No, yeah. um, we've got. It takes work, though. We have to remind ourselves. Um, the world is becoming so efficient at distracting us with social media, with with prompts and bells and and alerts. Um, I always joked when I was a young men's president when kind of the ESPN app was was kind of brand new and that da 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 <laughs> that would go off and I'd say, oh, somebody scored a touchdown. But it was fascinating to me what happened in that moment. It didn't matter what we were talking about. All of a sudden, every boy in that room wanted to know what score had happened, who had just scored a touchdown, or what big what big announcement had burst, and and we've given the world access to distracting us whenever it wants to, um, and and so I think we need to if if the world's going to increase its its efficiency in distracting us, if we're going to match that, we have to increase our output. Um, in our focus on eternal things, and, and that seems to be Haggai and Zechariah's messages. You've got to focus on the, the eternal or the long-term. Yeah. Uh, I, I think just maybe building on that, that if you do that, part of that is a refining process. All of the the things that are not as important, they have to be just burned off or cast aside or left behind. Um, there's a whole bunch of verses about the second coming prophecies that Zechariah makes that he's really famous for. Um, but but one of the parts I like is at the end of 13, um, the Lord says, I'll bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. The Lord is about to say, like, I'm giving you my name. I'm giving you my power when you're focused on me. I, I'll hear you. I'll help you. The Lord doesn't give up on us in this refining process. These these Jews coming out of exile are going to be refined a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that refining is going to continue up through the Savior. It's going to reti- or continue through the restoration of his gospel again on the earth. It's going to keep going through the second coming. And eventually, I hope all of us can say, I call on the name of the Lord. And he hears us and says, that's my people. Those are my people. They've been refined and, and will answer back, that's my God. Because I know that he, he takes care of us as we put him first and focus on him. Well, that's awesome. I um, hope you enjoyed Haggai and Zechariah, and we'll see you uh, next week with or Malachi. Malachi. Well, thanks again for joining us on Take a Second for Come Follow Me. Brother Black and myself want to emphasize that in this episode or any other episode, there's nothing that we've said that is meant to or can in any way be interpreted as the official doctrine or policy or practice of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Brother Black and myself simply represent two guys that enjoy talking about Scripture and and in our own life experiences as it relates to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and, and hope that in sharing some of our thoughts and insights, but certainly our personal opinions and nothing more, that uh, maybe it might open up the scriptures a little bit to you. So thanks again for joining us on Take a Second, and we will see you in our next episode.